Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. Uh, my name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, whether you're joining us in person or online, thank you for spending this Sunday morning with us. Well, as a church, we committed this year to pray every month for a different prayer topic. And the prayer topic for the month of March is women in ministry. By women in ministry, I'm talking about women who serve on our church staff, the women who are married to our pastors, and the women who serve as deaconesses of our church. Now, ministry is hard for everyone, for men and women, but there are unique challenges and struggles of being a woman in ministry. So church family, let's pray for these five prayer topics during the month of March. First, and most importantly, let's thank and praise God for the women in our church who are in ministry. They are God's good gifts to our church family, and God uses them to bless and serve our church in thousands of ways that you may not know or ever see. Think of it this way, as important as moms are to their families, so the women in ministry are that important to our church. So let's thank God for them. Second, let's pray for their rootedness and security in the gospel. Let's pray that they will grow deeper in their knowledge and experience of the gospel, and that they would know how much they are loved, cherished, and approved by their Father in heaven as daughters in Christ. Let's pray that the gospel would empower them to be both uh, humble and bold, to be both gentle and fearless, to both love everyone and be unafraid of anyone at the same time. And third, let's pray for our church culture. Let's pray that our church would have a culture where all the women, especially women in ministry, would feel valued, respected, honored, appreciated, uh, supported, and empowered as they serve Christ and our church in their respective ministry roles. Sadly, there are too many stories of women being disrespected, disparaged, and even abused as they serve in church ministry. Let's pray that that would never, ever happen at our church. Fourth, let's pray for their empowerment for faithful and fruitful ministry. Let's pray that God would use them and, uh, to bless and serve and, and minister to our church in powerful ways. Let's pray that our women in ministry would be beautiful and godly examples of faith, hope, and love to the whole congregation and especially to the younger women in our church. And fifth and lastly, let's pray for more women to be raised up for ministry. As the young women of our church see more and more women using their God-given gifts for the edification of the body in visible ministry and leadership roles, let's pray that God would call more and more godly and gifted women into ministry. For our church family to be healthy and fruitful, it is not enough for godly and gifted men to serve in public and visible ministry as pastors, elders, and deacons. We also need godly and gifted women to serve in public and visible ministry as well. So let's pray that God would raise up more women for ministry and that they would use their gifts to serve Christ and his church without any reservation, without hesitation, and with freedom and joy. So for the month of March, let's commit to praying for the women in our church who are in ministry for women on our church staff, for our pastor's wives, and for our deaconesses. They really are the unsung heroes of our church. So we're currently in a sermon series called Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. 
That's because the goal of this series is to follow Jesus around as he moves through the book of Luke. And we've been paying attention to the things that he did. We've been paying attention to the things that he said. And as we watch his actions and listen to his words, my prayer is that we would find Jesus captivating and compelling and that we would have greater certainty of the things that we believe as followers of Jesus. That Jesus really is the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, and the Son of God. And that Jesus really is worth following, even when it can be so very hard at times. The title of today's sermon is Repent and Live. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 9. Today, we're going to listen to Jesus again. And today, Jesus will teach us truths that are uncomfortable, truths that we may not want to hear, but they are important truths that we need to hear because eternal life and eternal death are at stake. So people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention and listen? There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you all likewise will perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, Jesus teaches us five important truths in our passage. Here is is the outline for today's sermon. First, the relationship between tragedy and sin Second, the reality of final judgment. Third, the universality of sin. Fourth, the necessity of repentance. And fifth, the patience and mercy of God. First, Jesus teaches us about the relationship between tragedy and sin. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus addresses two current events during his time that were tragic. First was the massacre of the Galileans, and the second was the collapse of a tower that killed 18 people. In verse 1, Jesus uh, was told about this massacre of the Galileans where Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. Apparently, while these Galileans were offering their Passover sacrifices at the temple, Pilate had his soldiers slaughter them so that their own blood was mixed and mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Now, we don't know what motivated Pilate to do this, 
but he ruthlessly killed these Galileans while they were in the middle of worshiping God, while they were offering their sacrifices to God. It's as if soldiers entered into a church while they were worshiping and shot the worshipers dead while they were worshiping. And that made the disciples ask, did their tragic deaths mean that there were worse sinners? Is that why this tragedy happened to them? And in verse 4, Jesus addressed another tragic event, the collapse of a huge tower that killed 18 people. Apparently, there was a freak accident where a tower fell, and it fell on 18 people, crushing and killing them. And that made the disciples wonder, did that happen to them because they were worse offenders? Is that why that tragedy happened to them? In the first case, people died tragically by the evil and unjust actions of a man. And in the second case, people died tragically by a freak accident. So whether by human injustice or by natural disaster, people died tragically and senselessly. And that made the disciples wonder, did those people die tragically because they were worse sinners? Was God punishing them? For their sins. And Jesus answered their question clearly and directly in verses 3 and 5. And he said, no, I tell you. They did not die tragically because they were worse sinners. According to Jesus, there is no direct or causal uh, relationship between tragedy and sin. You see, if you experience tragedy, that does not mean that you are more sinful than others. And vice versa. If there is no tragedy in your life, that does not mean that you're more righteous than others as well. The truth is that we don't know why God allows some people to experience awful tragedies while others do not. God has his reasons, and on this side of eternity, we will never know what those reasons are. But we do know this. When people experience tragedies, whether they're Christians or not, we know that it does not mean that they are worse sinners. It does not mean that God is punishing them for their sin. But many people, including Christians, often think like this in the back of their minds. And so Christians heap imagined guilt upon themselves when tragedies come upon them or upon their children or upon their loved ones. They are tempted to falsely think, is this happening to me because I'm a worse sinner? Is God punishing me for my sin? And to that kind of false thinking, Jesus says clearly, no, I tell you. And so, if something tragic has happened to you or to a loved one, it does not mean that you're a worse sinner or that God is punishing you. Maybe you've experienced some great injustice or abuse because of someone else's sin. Maybe you experienced heartbreaking miscarriage. Maybe you even lost a loved one to COVID or to cancer. Now, we don't know why God allowed those tragic things to happen, but we do know this. It is not because you're a worse sinner and your loved one who died from cancer or COVID, it was not because they were a worse sinner as well. Sometimes in the, mis, 
in the mysterious providence of God, tragic things happen to the best people, to the most loving, and to the kindest of people, like our sister Sarah Yoon, who died from cancer at such a young age. We don't know why God allowed her to get cancer. We don't know why God didn't heal her. We don't know why God called her home so early. But God has his reasons. And just because we can't see those reasons doesn't mean that God doesn't have reasons. And even though we don't know what God's reasons were for doing what he did, we do know this. Sarah did not die from cancer at a young age because she was a worse sinner than the rest of us who are still alive and who don't have cancer. We know that for sure because Jesus said so. So here's the first truth. According to Jesus, there is no causal relationship between tragedy and sin. So if a tragedy comes into your life, it is not because you're a worse sinner. If a tragedy comes into the life of your children or to a loved one, it is not because they are worse sinners. And at the same time, if there is no tragedy in your life, it does not mean that you're more righteous than others as well. You see, when tragedy comes, whether into our lives or into the lives of others, we must never presume that we know the reasons why. Only God knows why, and we leave it at that. Here's the second truth. The reality of final judgment. Now, Jesus took uh, the tragic deaths as an opportunity to warn his listeners about final judgment. Two times in verses 3 and 5, Jesus said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For Jesus to repeat something twice verbatim means that it's pretty important. Now, what did Jesus mean by perish? Did Jesus mean that we too would die by being slaughtered or have a tower fall on us? Is that the kind of perishing that Jesus was referring to? No. Jesus was not talking about physical death in this world, but he was talking about spiritual death in the life to come. Jesus was talking about eternal death in hell. Jesus was talking about final judgment. Eternal death in hell, the final judgment the lake of fire where sinners and devils will suffer anguish and torment forever. Those are not popular or pleasant ideas. They weren't during Jesus' time, and they're not today. They make us uncomfortable, as they should. But those are truths that are clearly taught in the Bible. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And according to Jesus, everyone, not just the people who suffer tragedies, but everyone will perish in hell for their sins for all eternity unless they repent. Now, whether you like the idea of hell or not, it is real. The final judgment is real. Um, there is going to be a place of eternal torment for those who die in their sins, unforgiven. Because God is infinitely holy, God must punish sin, and he must reward righteousness. But the Bible teaches us that there is not one who is righteous, not even one. All are sinners. All deserve to perish for their sins, every single one of us without exception. And when Christ comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
and all those who are found to be guilty of sin, injustice, and wickedness, they will perish forever. They will experience eternal death as the wrath of God will be unleashed upon them for all eternity. Now, this is no doubt a terrifying doctrine, but it is a true doctrine. And I would not be a faithful and a loving pastor if I shied away from teaching this doctrine because it makes us uncomfortable. Trust me, friends, I take no pleasure in talking about this. But I must talk about this because it's true and it's real. Hell is real. Final judgment is real. And the threat of perishing forever is real. Jesus said so himself. But did you know that this doctrine of final judgment and eternal punishment, though it may be an uncomfortable doctrine for us, especially as those who live comfortable and privileged lives in Northern Virginia, as those who have probably never really personally experienced gross injustice or oppression, but do you know that this doctrine is actually very comforting for those who have been and are the victims of cruelty, injustice, abuse, and oppression. They can get great comfort from this doctrine because even if their oppressors, traffickers, abusers, and victimizers escape justice in this life, they know that they will not escape justice in the life to come. God is holy. God hates injustice. God hates oppression. God hates abuse. And God will judge and punish those who commit such things. And we can take great comfort in that. So the second truth that Jesus teaches in our passage is this, the reality of final judgment. God will judge and punish sinners and evildoers because God is holy and good and loving. Here's the third truth that Jesus teaches us, the universality of sin. According to Jesus, everyone is a sinner and everyone deserves to perish for their sins. Now, the disciples thought that the people who died tragically were worse sinners. But Jesus said, no, they're not worse sinners. In fact, you're just as sinful as they are. Even though they may have been slaughtered, even though a tower may have crushed them, but you are just as bad as them. In fact, you're all worse sinners. You see, Jesus' point is that everyone is a sinner. In fact, everyone is the worst sinner that they think that others are. According to the Bible, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And, that, and then the wages of sin is death. Therefore, everyone deserves to perish for their sins. Now, as Christians, one of the first things that we learn to do is to confess that we are sinners. And we all believe that about ourselves. There is not a Christian that I know that doesn't confess that he's a sinner. But to be honest, most Christians, if not all Christians, also believe this, that some sinners are worse sinners. We church-going, religious, older brother types, we see the sins of the irreligious, younger brother types, and we see that their sins are worse than our sins. 
So we think that the people who use and abuse drugs and alcohol, the people who are promiscuous and adulterous, the people who lie and steal, the people who abuse their positional power and authority to defraud others and to abuse others, the people who embrace the LGBTQ identity and lifestyle, the God-hating atheists, they are certainly worse sinners than us, right? Yes, we're all sinners, but they are the worst sinners. And to that kind of self-righteous thinking, Jesus says to us, no, I tell you, they are not worse sinners than you. You're just as sinful as they are. In fact, you may be worse. You see, the sins of the religious, church-going, elder brother types are just as sinful if not worse than the sins of the irreligious younger brother types. Listen, listen very carefully. If you're proud and self-righteous and judgmental, condemning, disdaining, unmerciful, uncompassionate, and greedy, if you think that you are better than others, if you think that others are more sinful than you, then you are in just as much spiritual danger of perishing as the people that you think are the worst sinners. Consider this. Jesus was harsh and angry in his ministry toward who? The self-righteous religious types. The Pharisees. And he was patient and merciful with who? The self-indulgent, crazy types, right? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. Let me put it this way, and this may surprise some of you who grew up in church. God hates pride more than promiscuity. The proud straight man is in far greater spiritual danger than the humble same-sex attracted man. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of us are prone to thinking that others are worse sinners than us. You see, if you're a conservative, then the sins of the left seem far worse than your sins, and you might even think they deserve to have a tower fall on them. But if you're a liberal, if you're a progressive, then the sins of the right seem far worse than your sins. And you may think that they deserve to have a tower fall on them. All of us do that. But Jesus will have none of that. The sins of the liberal left and the sins of the conservative right are both repulsive to Jesus. The sins of the pagans and the sins of the Pharisees are both condemned by Jesus. You see, no matter where you are on the spectrum of sin, we are all sinners and we all deserve to perish for our sins. We are all the worst sinners, all of us. So Jesus taught the universality of sin. Now here's the fourth truth that Jesus taught, the necessity of repentance. Jesus used these tragic deaths to warn those who are alive, to warn his listeners to repent. In verses 3 and 5, Jesus said, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now this saying of Jesus was both a warning and a gracious promise at the same time, wasn't it? It was a warning. If you do not repent, you will perish. But it was also a gracious promise. 
But if you do repent, you will not perish and you will live. According to Jesus, repentance is not optional. Repentance is absolutely necessary if you do not want to perish, if you want to live. So what is repentance? What is repentance? First, let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not having a sense of guilt and shame and remorse for the bad things that you have done. That may be a conviction of sin, but that is not repentance. Do you know it's possible to be convicted of your sin, but not repent of your sin? It is possible to feel guilt, shame, and remorse over your sin, but still continue in it. So what is true repentance? Repentance involves turning, turning, and two types of turning. First, it means turning away from your sin, and second, it means turning toward Christ. First, true repentance involves turning away from your sin. It involves leaving your sin, forsaking your sin, quitting your sin. But the only way that you will truly turn away from your sin is if you see the odiousness and the heinousness and the repulsiveness of your sin. If you see that what your sins deserve is to have a tower fall on you for you to be slaughtered. In order to turn away from your sins, you have to hate your sin. You have to see the ugliness and the sinfulness of your sin. You have to be disgusted by your sin. Now, whether your sin is the sin of pride or promiscuity, self-righteousness or self-indulgence, you have to see the odiousness and the ugliness and the harmfulness of your sin. It is only when you can see how offensive your sins are to a holy God and what you deserve for your sins, only then will you want to turn away from your sin. Second, true repentance also involves a turning toward Christ. So it's not only a turning away from sin, but it's also a turning toward Christ. To turn toward Christ means to embrace him, to trust him, to love him, to obey him, and to follow him. But the only way that you will want to turn to Jesus is if you see his beauty, his mercy, his compassion, his goodness, and his love. It is only when you can see that Jesus really is the friend of sinners that he is your friend, a friend who loved you so much that he is willing to lay down his life for you. When you see that he is that kind of a friend who is ready to forgive you, receive you, embrace you, only then will you want to turn to him instead of run from him. You see, it is his kindness that will lead you to repentance. And in order to save you from perishing, you know what Jesus did? He was willing to perish for you. On the cross, in your place, as your substitute, Jesus voluntarily perished for you so that you might not perish. And when you see that kind of love from Jesus, when you see Jesus loving you to the point of laying down his life, for you. When you see that kind of love, it will melt your heart and it will make you want to turn to him. It will make you want to embrace Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus. If you do not want to perish, if you want to live forever, then you must repent. 
turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Listen to these beautiful words of Jesus from the Gospel of John. In John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in John 15.13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. So Jesus taught the necessity of repentance. Unless you repent, you will perish. But if you repent, you will not perish, but you will live. Jesus perished for you so that you might live. See how great the love of Jesus is for you today. And here's the fifth and final truth from our text. The patience and the mercy of God. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus told a parable to express both the patience and the mercy of God. And this parable is pretty straightforward. A man planted a fig tree in his vineyard. For three years, he watered it, did everything that you're supposed to do to make sure a fig tree uh, blossoms and bears fruit. But after three years, this fig tree bore no fruit whatsoever. And so the owner was frustrated and said, you know, cut this tree down because it's just using up soil. But the vine dresser or the gardener comes along and says, sir, just give it one more year. Let me dig around it. Let me put manure on it. And if in a year, if it bears fruit, good and well. But if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. Now, this parable is pretty simple to understand. The owner of the fig tree is God the Father. The vine dresser, the gardener, is God the Son, Jesus. The fig tree is us. And the fruit that God is looking for is the fruit of repentance. Now, the fact that God the Father is willing to wait another year for us to bear the fruit of repentance expresses the patience of God. And the fact that God the Son is willing to do extra work, the work of digging around the tree, the work of putting manure on the tree, expresses the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to bear the fruit of repentance. Why? Because he does not want us to perish. He wants us to live. It shows us the mercy of Jesus. And the mercy of Jesus is seen in what? In his willingness to dig around the tree and put manure on the tree. To dig around the fig tree means to take away soil, doesn't it? To take away the soil that the fig tree thinks that it needs to live and survive. To put manure on it is to give the fig tree something that is smelly and unpleasant. The other night, my daughter Lizzie and I, we went for a long walk. And we walked by some trees where fresh manure had been placed uh, on the soil of the trees. And as you can imagine, it smelled terrible. Manure doesn't smell good. But manure, though it smells terrible... Is good for the tree and helps the tree to grow and to bear fruit. You see, friends, sometimes in Jesus' severe mercy toward us, in order for us to bear the fruit of repentance, in order for us to turn from our sin and to turn toward Jesus, Jesus will dig around us and Jesus will put manure on us. Jesus will dig around us by taking away the things that we love, the things that make us happy, the things that we think we need to be happy, things like health or money or even relationships. 
and it will be painful when he digs and takes away the things that we love. But he just won't just dig. He'll also put manure on us by giving us things that we don't like or want, things that are unpleasant and smelly, things that feel like manure, things like sickness or hardship or even failures, things that feel like dung. But why? Why would Jesus dig around us and take things away? Why would Jesus put manure on us, the things that smell bad and things that we don't want? It's because he loves you. And in his mercy, he does not want you to be cut down and perish. So in order for you to bear the fruit of repentance, Jesus will dig around you and he will put manure into your life. You see, sometimes Jesus will hurt you in order to heal you. Sometimes Jesus will break your heart or even your leg to save your soul. Sometimes Jesus will take away something you love to give you something you need, the gift of repentance, so that you might not perish but live. This, my friends, is the severe mercy of Jesus for you. So what, what's the takeaway for today? Let me wrap this up. First, I have a word for you, those of you who are not yet Christians. Today, I want to urge you to heed the warning of Jesus. Unless you repent, you will perish. Jesus does not want you to perish, so he wants you to repent. So he calls you to repent. He wants you to see how serious your sins are and to turn away from your sins. And he wants you to see how beautiful he is and for you to turn to Jesus and to embrace him as your Savior, as you love him, trust him, and follow him. You see, if you turn from your sins and if you turn toward Jesus in faith, you will not perish, but you will live. Second, I have a word for those of you who are already Christians. Repenting is not something you do one time at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something that you do continuously throughout the entirety of your Christian life. As we grow through life, all of us, we will struggle with sin. And at times, we can give in to sin and even live in sin for a season. And when that happens, we must repent. So let me ask you today, is there a sin in your life that you know that you need to repent of? To turn from, to quit, and to forsake? If there is, I, as your pastor and your friend, plead with you today to repent. See the seriousness and the ugliness of your sin and turn from it. And see again the beautiful love and compassion of Jesus, your Savior, and return to him. You see, if you are a true Christian, then I know that you have been miserable and joyless as you've been living with sin in your life. If you're a regenerate Christian, you are despondent and depressed and miserable when there is unconfessed and unrepentant sin in your life. Why will you stay there in that dark abyss? See the beautiful mercy and love of Jesus and return to him. Let Jesus restore to you the joy of your salvation. 
See, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been living in your sin, today you can turn from your sin, and today you can return to your Savior, and he will forgive you, he will receive you, and he will restore you. He will restore to you the joy of your salvation, that joy that you lost while you were living in sin. You see, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you may have messed up your life, if you repent today, you will not perish, but you will live. So no matter what you've done, friend, it's not too late. Repent today and you will be forgiven. If you've been acting like the prodigal son, return home. Your father loves you and he's waiting for you. He's waiting to throw a welcome back party for you. So return home. Return home. He's waiting for you and let him restore the joy of your salvation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today you would draw back all your prodigal sons and daughters that they might repent of their sin and turn to your son and experience the joy of forgiveness the joy of your embrace as their Father in heaven. Oh God, even if you need to bring a severe mercy into their lives, bring them back that they might not perish, but live. Amen.
Dearly beloved people of God, would you stretch forth your hands to receive the benediction of the God who loves you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday. Bye for now.